you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives for ever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. A lot of you have met me before. My name is Coy, and I'm the associate pastor here at Sydney Hill, Melbourne West. And over the past few weeks in our series in Revelation, we've been both uh, encouraged and challenged as the last few chapters have unveiled the nature of judgment uh, seen from a God who hates sin. Yet he's also a God of grace who deeply loves his children. Now, as we begin today's passage and we go straight in, similar to the last few weeks, we once again see God ready to judge. Verse 1 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. See, in verse 7, these seven angels are given golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, they are instructed to pour out on the earth these seven bowls of the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, we see the bowls are actually poured out. The first sees harmful and painful sores appearing on the bodies of those people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. With the second, the seas turned to blood and every living thing died. That was in the sea. The third sees the, the, the inland rivers turn to blood. The fourth sees the sun scorch people with fire. And then the fifth sees almost the reversed, as the kingdom of the, the beast is plunged into darkness. The sixth sees the mighty river Euphrates dried up and the armies of the east rushing across it for battle, assembling in a place called Armageddon. And then comes the seventh, the final bowl, a great earthquake such as no one has ever seen since here on earth. The great city of Babylon is split 
in three parts, and then the physical realm collapses. As every island fled away, mountains cower, and the great hailstones crush those on earth. So this is an extraordinary and troubling passage, and it raises a bunch of questions. What's it describing exactly? Are these things literal, or are they symbolic? They're clearly prophecies, so when are they fulfilled? And what are they supposed to do? What are we supposed to do with it anyway? Now, what exactly they're describing and when it occurs really depends on how you read the book of Revelation. And there's four main views. So first we have the preterist view, which is where it talks about the fulfilled in where that is being fulfilled in the past within the time of the Roman Empire. Now it comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past. And this view focuses on uh, how Revelation was a letter written to the churches of Asia Minor. That means that that these bowls are largely figurative, but describe in graphic detail either the fall of the Roman Empire or the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. See, boils might be a reference to the plagues that beset Rome at that time. The rivers turning to blood might refer to a battle described by Josephus where the Romans massacred a large number of Jews by uh, the Sea of Galilee. Or the kings from the east would be the Parthians, which which was Rome's only true threat at that time. Or there's another view, the Hystris view, where it talks about it's fulfilled progressively throughout history as we read Revelation. If you hold to this view, then you'll probably uh, see the cycles of seven that we've been in in the past uh, three weeks now. you see the cycles of seven occurring sequentially through time. So the seven seals become the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets become the seven bowls, which we are in today. Again, this means that the seven bowls are seen as largely symbolic, describing events a few hundred years ago in a particular way that that sees God as God's judgment on the the papacy through the French Revolution, bores and and, um, sores, plague of atheism that the French Revolution brought in. The seas turning to blood are seen to represent the significant naval defeat suffered by the French during the time of Lord Nelson. The scorching heat of the sun is the rise of the Napoleon, I said Napoleon Dynamite by accident last service, so I won't say it this time, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, the scorching heat of the sun in the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte, who caused great hardship of the many Catholic parts of Europe. Or you may hold to the futurist view, fulfilled at the end of time, as we read through Revelation, just before the second coming of Christ, probably during a time called the Great Tribulation. Again, the cycles of seven might be read as happening sequentially, and these bowls come right at the end. Some people would see them as symbolic, and others might see them as uh, literal. It could be literal in describing actual plagues that, co- uh, that will come upon the earth towards the end, or it could provide a picture of how human society dis- disintegrates under God's judgment. So, for example, swords could be the result of nuclear warfare, you may have heard before, akin to horrific skin diseases suffered by those surviving the atomic bomb in, Hir- in Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl. And the sea in the second bowl, maybe it suggests it's symbolic of the nations, restless in their sin and corruption, now suffering widespread deaths. See, futurists often make uh, predictions, though, and they can quickly go out of date. Um, like the kings of the east described in the sixth bowl, um, overpowering all others, have been identified throughout history as 
uh, different things. So maybe World War II, it was thought of to be in reference to Japan. Um, but then after Japan fell, then the Cold War developed, then people thought it might be a reference to China. Or there's the fourth view, the idealist view, which talks about the patterns and principles fulfilled repeatedly throughout Revelation. The prophecies depict general patterns uh, at timeless principles, you could say, that recur throughout history, all pointing toward the completion of history. This is the approach I take to the book personally um, because I think it picks up the best aspects of the three other views as well. Um, it acknowledges the fact that Revelation began life as a letter written to churches in the first century who needed, to, uh, he needed the specific pastoral care, but also recognizes the book points to all of God's people toward like forward and the return of Jesus, offering each generation uh, of Christians wisdom for the challenges that they face. So I'm not dogmatic on this at all by any sense. Um, as I say, I think the, there are strengths in all four of the views. And I recognize that there will be people here who stand on different views out of the four. But for me, this is the one that makes the most sense from the book. And so when I read a prophetic vision, like this prophetic vision in Revelation, I'm actually looking for four specific things, four fulfillments. A preliminary fulfillment in the Roman Empire, a final fulfillment, in the end times before Christ's return, a general fulfillment that's in every age, and a specific fulfillment that's in our age. And importantly, I think by looking at it this way, I think it keeps us most focused on the purpose of revelation. That's what we've got to be looking for, the purpose. That's why I like how theologian um, Vern Poitras describes this book as a picture book, not a puzzle book. All too often, you see people approach this book as a, a puzzle book, spending all their time trying to figure out, you know, this plus this equals that, minus this, must mean this, must be a helicopter, etc. It gets it get really super specific on what it represents and who that might rep, uh, symbolise or what that symbolises and developing all these complex timelines. And honestly, it can be fascinating. It can be fascinating to read in that sense. But so is Nostradamus. Nostradamus is fascinating too. So, it, so is anyone who thinks that they can predict the future. So is a horoscope, fascinating to read. And so what we really need to do, as we're in Revelation, what we really need to focus in on is focus back on what the book is actually trying to tell us. What is this passage telling us today? And that's how I want to approach today's prophecy. You see, there's something else here that's worth noting. If you've been here in the last month, it's that these things sound quite familiar for the last three weeks. This sounds very familiar. That's because Revelation centers around three cycles of seven judgments. We have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and today the seven bowls. And there's a considerable debate on how they're all related to each other. Some people think that they are sequential, as I said earlier, um, like seals followed by the trumpets by the bowls. Uh, and I argued a few weeks ago uh, when I was sharing up here that they're actually describing the same thing that there are three versions, three perspectives on the same events. Now, why do I say that? Well, all three of them seem to conclude with the end of the world. They all describe God's judgment, and each of them end with God's final judgment. So in chapter 8, the seventh seal describes God's presence. It says in chapter 8, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. 
And we get a similar picture with the seventh trumpet. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. And now today, with the seventh bowl, God exclaims, it is done. It is done with an air of finality. And once again, we read today's passage. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. See, these are signs of God's presence, of God's return. And so all three cycles seem to be ending with God's final judgment, with their time when God returns to judge the world. That suggests then that they're all covering the same period of history, or as I think they're describing the themes and the, and the patterns that recur throughout history. So why do we need three visions of it? Well, because God really wants us to see something. I think God really wants us to see something. The writer Tim Chester suggests it's like an action replay in footy. We have heard this throughout the past few, few weeks. It's a good reminder. When a goal is scored, you're shown a replay, and then you're shown it from another angle and another angle and another angle. They're showing you the same thing from the various perspectives so that you can get the full picture. And what is that he wants us to see? What is the full picture? It's his judgment against sin. That's what all three of these visions have been about. They're about God's response to human sin. Now, I think that also gives us some insight into whether the things described here are actually literal or symbolic. Some of them are clearly uh, symbolic. Uh, in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Now, I don't think there's like three like demonic frogs jumping out of people's mouths, um, but one writer has, has shared that the image is grotesque. Ancients usually viewed frogs as unclean, ugly, and vicious. There's no actual dragon. Uh, as we saw last week, the dragon is the devil, is Satan. But he's described as a dragon because of his intent to devastate, his intent on destruction. And yet some of the natural disasters that are described are certainly believable and even familiar, right? They certainly sound like some of the plagues from Egypt, as read in Exodus. The churches of Asia Minor saw many, many earthquakes. And there are hospitals in Italy right now that sounds similar to some of these things that we have just read. And so, so perhaps we could say that they are indicative. They are, in a sense, uh, indicative of what has happened in the past, of what will happen in the future, and what may be happening right now. And frankly, they're, design, they're designed to frighten people. They are, in a sense, your worst nightmare. They're deliberately lurid images that are designed to give people a real sense of how powerful God is and how real his wrath and judgment is. See, this is a thing that comes through repeatedly in this passage and in all three of these cycles. I mean, just look at how this section starts. In verse 7, these seven angels are given golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, they are instructed to pour out on the earth 
the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And when it begins, no one can interrupt him, as it says. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. See, there's something fierce going on here. When God moves to judge, he cannot be disturbed. It's a bit like when you're a kid and you see your dad angry with your brother or with your sibling, and you know you just shouldn't disturb him, right? God cannot be deterred from his wrath. When he moves to judge, everyone steers clear. Now, we are incredibly uncomfortable with this as we hear this. Something like this is incredibly uncomfortable. We hate, we hate the idea of a wrathful God, a God who judges. And we want him, we want him to be more merciful. Always forgive, always give people more chances. And so we balk at the idea of, of, of him judging. Now I want to address this today and suggest four things about God's judgment. First, it's that God's judgment is necessary. Joseph Stalin was one of the 20th century worst dictators and most evil leaders. Central to his power and control were these things, were the gulags. They were labor camps for people deemed dangerous to the state. This began with his great purges of the elite military officers and government officials who posed some kind of threat to his authority, but quickly expanded to more intellectuals, writers, artists, scientists, doctors, and then ordinary citizens, peasants, the families of any soldier who surrendered in battle would put in these gulags. Conditions were horrific, overcrowded quarters, inadequate rations, disease, hard labor, beatings, rape, abuse, all in the bitter cold of Siberia. 18 million passed through the gulags, 18 million people passed through the gulags. Estimates on how many died ranged from 6 million, ranged from 1.6 million to 6 million, all killed by their own government. And yet Stalin didn't see any justice for this. He died at the decent age of 74. His body was laid to rest in Moscow's Red Square. And hundreds of thousands came to honour him. And as time has passed, his reputation has actually improved. A 2019 poll found that 70% of Russians said they approved of Stalin's role in history. A record high. The current president, Vladimir Putin, has described Stalin as an effective manager. And in 2015, instructed museums to remove any evidences of the gulags. Indeed, most young Russians have never heard of the gulags because history books have either ignored it or they brush over it. And so Stalin's crimes are almost lost in history. His evil is whitewashed. And that's not right. That's not right. He deserves punishment. His victims would surely demand justice. And there's other cases that demand justice too. There's a show on Netflix at the moment called Dirty Money, a documentary series which exposes the the many ways, the corrupt ways 
corrupt ways that people uh, make money in America. Payday lending schemes that destroy the financially vulnerable, pushing people out of their homes to make more money, preying on old people, basically forcing them to get legal guardians who then carve up their estate. Now, most of what I've told you is simply what I've read. I actually haven't fully watched them because I'm worried that if I watch it, I'll get quite frustrated and quite angry because these people you see, there's people in there that are evil, but I know they won't see justice. But the message of the seven bowls is that God will give justice. God will punish. God will punish anyone who ignores him, anyone who defies him. We need this. Craig Keener says, if God doesn't judge, then he's not sovereign. If God never responds to evil, it proves that he has no power over the world, and so our world has no true order. And he's not worthy of worship. One writer, Miroslav Volf, says, in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end of violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. And yet, that might still be very uncomfortable for us to hear. See, last week, someone in our very own church, one of our own, got mugged coming home from uh, their apartment, parking their car when suddenly they got jumped by three teenagers, hit across the face, car stolen. A few months ago, just a few months ago before this, some people in our church suffered a home invasion. A dude off his head on drugs, forced his way into the house, and they had, wrestle, they had to wrestle him off the property until the police came. Horrible things, horrible things to experience. And our first response is, whoever did these things to our friends deserved, deserved to be punished. Certainly that was my first response. And yet all these people very quickly showed compassion. I feel sorry for them. They did the wrong thing. They deserve punishment, but I don't want them to suffer too much. That's a human reaction, right? It's a very human reaction. And so we expect that from God too. No? Yes, we know that wrongdoing demands justice. Yes, we see the need for punishment. Yes, we can totally see how it's justified in extreme cases. But even so, can't God be a bit more merciful? See, there's three things then that are important to note. God's judgment is controlled. His judgment is reluctant. And his judgment is slow in coming. See, in chapter 15, verse 2, it says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. See, in Jewish tradition and consciousness, the sea was synonymous with chaos and order, and disorder, sorry. Often then it was used to describe human rebellion and sinfulness. As it says in Isaiah 57, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. Now, however, in our passage today, God is doing something about it. A sea of glass is a calmed sea. It's clear 
and smooth because God is in control. And yet it's also mingled with fire. There's wrath here because God is about to judge. God is about to pour out on the earth the seven bowls of his wrath. And there's something here, isn't there? There's wrath and there's control. Wrath with control. Now, we find these things difficult to hold together. We're either angry or we're controlled. It's hard for us to be both. We often say, don't we, that people can be blinded with rage. It's hard for us to be controlled in our anger. We see that when we're driving on the freeway. It's hard, but God does hold them together. God holds them together. This is judgment, but it never exceeds justice. It never just becomes angry, overblown vengeance. It is just. It is true. Just and fair. True and correct. And while controlled, God's judgment is also reluctant. Ezekiel 33 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, judgment is not God's God's fixed attitude. It's not what he wants to do. It's not what he sits there and he enjoys doing. So, does the idea of God judging trouble you? Rest assured, It troubles God too. Wayne Grudem says, the reason it is hard for us to think of the doctrine of hell is because God has put in our hearts a portion of his own love for people created in his image, even his love for sinners who rebel against him. See, indeed, the Bible makes it clear, the Bible makes it clear that he holds off the judgment day so more people can find his mercy. 2 Peter 3 said, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But will people repent? And so what actually makes this passage so so demoralizing, so devastating, is the refusal to repent. Even though God's judgment is slow in coming. See, I said before that I don't think these visions are sequential. And yet there is some sort of progression here, actually. There's a sort of progression in them, or at least an intensification. They they intensify as we keep going. Look, in the seven seals earlier on, judgment affects a quarter of all things. In chapter 6 it says, And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And then next, the seven trumpets. Judgment affects then one-third of the things. In chapter 8, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And now, the seven bowls. Judgment affects everything. It sounds mathematical, but it's actually kind of a literary device showing us how God works. He delays his judgments. He gives people time to repent. But, but, there is a time when there is no time left. 
That's the implication here in our passage today. Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, These are the last signs, for with them the wrath of God is finished. You see, with the other cycles that we've gone through, there's a possibility of repentance. The manifestations we see are judgments, but they're also warnings and invitations. Now, however, we see no space given for repentance because time is up. The time is up. God has given people a chance, but they have refused him. He has given them another chance and another chance and another chance, chance, but still they have ignored him. So now he must judge. And that's God's warning to us. See, we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at the seven trumpets that these were calls to repentance. When we see natural disasters or plagues or or viruses, God is warning us about the power and the danger of sin and inviting us to return to him, return to your creator. And yet we saw, didn't we, that people still didn't repent. Revelation 9 verse 20 says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And the same thing happens here with the bowls, with the seven bowls. In fact, people seem to be hardened in their view about God. Look what it says in verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And indeed, as you keep going, the battle of Armageddon is a further sign of this. There's a lot of conjecture about this battle and what's going on here. The name Armageddon comes from the valley of Megiddo, a site where Israel has fought several key battles um, in their history. And some commentators think that the armies uh, of the world come now to this place to, to fight each other. That's what's going to happen. While other writers think they're massing their forces against God because that's what, this, that's what will be described in chapter 19. But either way, point being, there's no sign of repentance right up even to the end. Even though God warns, people don't respond. Even when God judges, people don't humble themselves. God warns again and again and again, and people ignore him again and again and again. And so finally, he judges. God is slow to judge. But there comes a time when he must judge. Because justice demands that he judge. And that should be 
a real, real wake-up call to us. You see, you'll often hear people say that they're holding out on repenting, on turning to God because they believe they'll always have time. Why repent now when I can do it later? I'll have fun now. I'll live it up. I'll live my life. I want to live how I want to live. And then just before the end, on my deathbed, I'll repent and turn to God. Now, obviously, this is a massive, massive gamble. Anyone can die any day. We all know this. And actually, in the most surprising way, as I did some research, Brazilian man was killed in 2013 when a cow fell through his roof and onto him as he slept. In 2009, a 14-year-old boy from China was killed when the pneumatic cylinder in his office chair exploded. In 2007, a 24-year-old man in California was killed after being struck in the face by an airborne fire hydrant while walking. In 2010, Mike Edwards, 62, a cellist, founding member of this band called ELO, died when a large, round bale of hay came down the hill, rolled down the hill and collided into his van when he was driving. It's a massive gamble. But it's not just chance and disaster that can happen to people. It's hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. You see, if you do leave it to the end, there's no guarantee that you will repent, that you will turn to God right at the end. In fact, there's almost more chance that you'll stay defiant. That's what we see here. When these calamities come upon them, can you imagine what these people are seeing? The worst of the worst things are happening. Surely they'd be saying, okay, God is probably real. These calamities are happening. Yet people don't become softer towards God. They become harder. And so God judges them. And when he judges them, he's actually giving them what they want. This ultimately is what all of God's judgment is, even hell itself. One writer says, hell is the culmination of telling God to get out. You keep telling God to leave you alone, and finally God says, okay. When you tell God you don't want him as the Lord and center of your life, eventually you get your wish. Now, of course, anyone in hell under God's judgment would want to get out of that and be free of it. But if if they were told that the only way to get out of it was repentance, then they'd still say no. Just think of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus told this story, this parable in Luke 16. There's a rich man who lives in pomp and lives in luxury, and at his gate is this poor man, Lazarus who can only eat the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table, rich man's feet. And so the rich man is mistreating Lazarus. However, things are changed when they die, as Jesus tells the parable. The poor man goes to be with God, and the rich man goes to Hades. And it's from there that the rich man cries out, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now that kind of sounds like repentance, does it? Right? But is it? Well, no, actually. D.A. Carson, a famous writer, points out that the man is still mistreating Lazarus. Even now. Wouldn't you expect 
the rich man to say, oh, Lazarus, did I get that wrong? I got that wrong, and I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Would you please forgive me? But he doesn't even address him. He was a nobody to him while he was alive, and the rich man doesn't deal with nobodies. And so he goes straight to the top. He asks Father Abraham. He still thinks he is the center of the universe, this rich man. He's still going to order Lazarus around, get him to do this for me. There is no brokenness. There is no contrition. There is no shame. And so Carson concludes, Hell is not filled with people who are deeply sorry for their sins. It is filled with people who for all eternity still shake their puny fist in the face of God Almighty in an endless existence of evil and corruption and shame and the wrath of God. See, C.S. Lewis suggested provocatively that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That essentially people choose hell because they don't want God. He writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So, what kind of person are you? See, we hear about the rich man and we see that he had no more warnings. These people in Revelation, it seems they have no more warnings. But it's still there for us as we read it. We read in verse 2 of chapter 15, And I saw what appeared to be a, glass, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The they that we speak about are those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. This is a reference to the passage from last week. There is a beast who seeks to destroy and seduce God's people, but they have conquered this beast, God's people. They exercised endurance and faith. They held firm in their faith. They resisted the temptation to compromise, and they withstood persecution. And now they sing. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See how these people speak of God. They recognize his power. He is Lord God Almighty to them. See how they celebrate his deeds. They say, you are great and amazing. And they acknowledge his goodness, his righteousness. They say, just and true are your ways, God. They are saying, in other words, that God's actions against sin are right. They're just. They're fair. They're true. They're correct. They're appropriate. Now, partly this can be explained because God has acted for them. As the third bowl is poured out and the rivers are turned to blood, the angels explain that this is all done in response to the persecution of God's people. 
16 verse 5 says, And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. See, there's something very fitting about these plagues. In fact, they have shed the blood of the saints, and so their blood is shed. And so God's people feel vindicated. They rejoice because God has heard their cries for justice. We've seen this in the past few weeks through the cycles. Vindication, rejoice, crying for justice. God has kept his covenant with them. He has kept his promise. But don't misunderstand this. You see, I don't think they're glorifying in God's wrath, these these Christian people, God's people, or reveling in the fact that other people are being judged. No. God's people applaud God's justice only because they have experienced his mercy. There's a line right near the end that really stood out for me. In verse 17, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. This statement is at the end of history, yet it reminds me of a moment, another moment in the middle of history. The death of Jesus Christ. John 19 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. God's wrath in this passage is stark, it is startling, it's real. And it's severe. And we are left in no uncertain times that God punishes sin. All sin. Which means that he will punish our sin. Not just Hitler, not just Stalin, not just the most evil person that you know. But us too. Our sin. But there is a way out. There is an alternative. You see, on the cross, God punished human sin too, but took that punishment on himself. Jesus took on the sins of his people and absorbed the punishment that was deserved for us. 2 Corinthians, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is open to anyone. Anyone who will repent. If you are willing to acknowledge and confess your sin, God will take it, God will deal with it, and God will forgive it. And if you've done that, you're free. On the cross, Jesus finished your sin. Now note this. It was still punished. God is just. God is true. He must punish sin. He must punish your sin 
and my sin. The bowls of God's wrath are poured out, but on Jesus instead of us. See, in the second century, the world was struck by the Antonine Plague. Five million people died. Um, and then later on, in, throughout the third century, there was the Plague of Cyprian, where half of all the people that encountered it died as well. Many fled. Government officials, the wealthy, all fled. Yet Christians stayed behind. And Bishop Dionysius says, most of our Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. How did the Christians do it? They weren't blasé. They weren't arrogant as if they were immune to these diseases. They weren't superstitious and imagined it wouldn't reach them. But they had a faith. God had saved them, so they were safe. They might die, and many of them did, but they would live. For Jesus took God's wrath in their place. They knew they stood before God, not punished, but redeemed. They walk not in death, but in life. They await not judgment, but joy. These people, they needn't fear disease, needn't fear destruction, danger, or death, for they knew Jesus had already overcome. How timely is this for us today? That's what's available to us. That's what we can have. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in him. For he bore the wrath that we may have life. Our God in all his wrath is true, is just, is merciful. But ultimately, he is good. Let's pray together. Father, as we've been in your book of Revelation and we've seen over the past few weeks, uh, just the unveiling of, of judgment, Lord, of the wrath that's to come. It's been confronting, it's been challenging to us, Lord. But in it, we see a merciful God, a God of grace, who gives us so many opportunities to repent. You're a God who hates sin, yet you love us. So, Lord, may we come to you in repentance. We sit here as sinners, yet as we come to you, we ask your son, Jesus, we can sit here redeemed by the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Your son Jesus took on the wrath that we deserved, that we may have eternal life in you. Father, you are so good, and we give you praise for the wondrous truth that you are who you say you are. May we honor you, may we love you, may we surrender our lives to you, our good God, who is true, who is just full of grace. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.